Anglophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and hello, Stephanie Callis. Hi, Kaylee McMahon. Oh, it's so weird that I'm so excited to see you because we've been having bi-weekly hangouts and movie nights virtually over the last year, but... um. I don't know, you haven't seen me in an upright position at my desk for a very long time, so this is quite novel. This is quite novel. This morning, I am figuring out how to record these episodes in a new apartment. I did have to move during the pandemic, which was really convenient, and it was exactly what I wanted to spend my time doing. (laughs) You know, I mentioned more than once during other recordings that I lived in a guest house, and so the nearest bit outside my window was a backyard, but now I've got a boulevard, and we've got planes, and so if the sound is less good, I'll fucking figure it out. Jesus Christ. I survived a pandemic thus far. Yeah, life and progress is not linear, man. I think the last year has hammered that home pretty hard. How are you doing, generally? You know, if I'm grading myself on a curve with all of humanity, I've had like an A, A minus pandemic. If I'm grading myself on where I want my own mental health and happiness to be, Maybe like a C minus most days. Yeah. I'm still very, very nervous about reopening. I think that there's so many unknowns and I'm really angry at the people who are like, yeah, let's jump back in to hell with masks. Consequences be damned. And I'm like, read the news, guys. This ain't over. Yeah. To clarify, we are saying this toward the end of June. Mm -hmm. So by the time this comes out, who knows what might have happened with all of that, Kaylee? Oh my God. That's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) When I was writing the intro today, I made reference to the COVID-19 pandemic, as if we don't all know what pandemic I'm talking about. But then again, I thought a couple years in the future, maybe this won't be the only pandemic that we've lived through. Fantastic. This is off to a sunny start. Yay. (laughs) Save all your fucking masks. Oh my God. Yeah. And then people can be like, how did you get masks so quickly? And you'll be like, I never got rid of mine. You (laughs) youngsters don't know. I still have black beans and toilet paper from the last one. (laughs) And by the way, all old people sound like this in the future. I never moved to the South, (laughs) even though this isn't very Southern. Yeah. Stephanie only gets Southern when she gets horny. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not horny now. I know, Jesus. that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Oh, right, yeah. That was hardly a southern accent. It's weird how nervous I feel doing this. I just feel so out of practice because we haven't done this in over a year. Yeah, no, I do feel similarly. And I have to stop and remind myself just because other people are going to hear this and have an opinion on it doesn't mean that means shit to me. (laughs) I mean, of course, I do want our listeners to come back because I like them. But I've also been working quite hard on, on the whole idea of like, just because I am creating something that is going to be enjoyed by more people than simply me does not mean that its imperfections are now huge problems just because someone else is going to enjoy the thing. Maybe that made any sense maybe it didn't no no that that makes sense and i wish that i could adopt your attitude because i am coming from a place of okay stephanie and i are doing this thing it's a labor of love we're making zero money from it and like a hundred people listen but if we get a single one star review i am devastated why do i care what some rando on the internet thinks i don't know i'm just built to only remember the negative things that people have said to me throughout my whole life and that is how a lot of creatives feel yeah i have heard various successful people say pretty much the same thing. I've heard Mark Marin say it and his podcast is like 
the mother of all podcasts. So we're in good company then. We're, we're exactly like Mark Marin. <laughs> Tell your friends. This podcast is on the same level. I would love to be on the same level there as Mark Marin. <laughs> Slipping oh. south of the mm. Mason Dixon. Anyway, should we start talking about the show? Because I feel like a lot of our pandemic related thoughts and tangents are going to arise organically from the subject matter. I completely agree with you. We can start talking about the show. Anglophilia! <laughs> yes. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Staged today, which I really enjoyed. Staged is a series conceived, produced, and set in lockdown during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. as promised. <laughs> Premiering on BBC One in June of 2020 with a second season airing in January 2021. Michael Sheen and David Tennant star as fictionalized versions of themselves as they attempt to rehearse a play over Zoom at the behest of their ineffectual director, Simon Evans, who, in addition to playing himself, wrote and directed all of the episodes and co-created the show with Finn Glynn. The show was filmed in the actors' homes on their phones and laptops, and a vast majority of the scenes take the form of Zoom meetings, with the only in-person interactions taking place between the stars and their respective real-life lockdown partners. David's wife, Georgia Tennant, Michael's girlfriend, Anna Lundberg, and Simon's sister, Lucy Eaton. So yeah, yeah, that's that's about it for my spiel um i want to start by saying that i don't know about you steph but i've heard a lot of talk in the last however like 15 months or whatever about zoom fatigue mm -hmm. and that's not really something that i've felt personally because most of my zooms have been purely social and as someone who lives alone and has a lot of really close relationships with people who are geographically distant yourself being a prime example of that my social life has kind of had a real renaissance <laughs> over the last year so i've always been really happy to stare at a screen as long as that screen contains the face of one of my best friends. However, I will add the caveat that Zoom-based entertainment fatigue is very real for me. And I really think that Staged is the one piece of genuinely good Zoom-based entertainment to come out of this pandemic, and I think that they really nailed the format, which is a weird and horrible format that's experienced an explosion, you know, out of necessity, but which a lot of us are already sick of. And, like, within this subgenre, it's just so well done and so fresh and funny, and it captured the moment in a way that doesn't make me feel annoyed at all. Thank goodness they didn't attempt to do this live. That's an advantage they definitely had over <laughs> some other creatives because oh God, yeah. <laughs> when they interrupt each other on this show it's because of the show mm -hmm. a huge bit of zoom fatigue is the cutting each other off i mean for my work i'm zooming all the goddamn time and it's just a lot of sorry go ahead oh i thought you were finished oh no no you no you <laughs> and so if that were happening on stage i would have had to turn it off <laughs> so yes i agree with you however to be fair anybody who hasn't seen this show really should because we are obviously going to spoil elements of the plot and there are some really wonderful guest stars i don't think we'll get to talking about all of them but right now at least it's on hulu if you live in america so you should really watch this. It's a really delightful, easy, quick binge. I forgot how we do this. How do we usually jump into the show? Let's see. Usually, I guess we would start by talking about the characters. Do we want to start there? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the characters. Okay. Michael Sheen and David Tennant are up first, and my goodness. <laughs> I always liked them, but this show made me really, really love them. In the same way that a lot of the guest appearances on Extras made me forever love an actor who the rest of their body of work I didn't have any special connection with. They were funny. They so were adorable. Funny. They were pretty cute. Of course. <laughs> and there were times, though, I mean, we've talked about this before, about how, you know, sometimes when we watch these shows, we sort of start 
taking on the tone like our lives start to kind of take on the tone of the show (laughs) or at least like our psyches and so I kind of felt like I could also very much find David Tennant just like annoying and a whiner and all of that and I could also find Michael Sheen either like boring or too extra which are criticisms that other people hurl at them and which they Mm -hmm. hurl at each other all the time and so yeah I found myself just like stuck in their world as if I were on a zoom with them did Mm -hmm. you ever figure out which one of us is which I was gonna (laughs) ask you that because I don't know it's not as clear-cut for me as it was with bottom weirdly words like I can't explain why but you're obviously Eddie and I'm obviously Richie. With this, I don't know. know. Do you have a theory? Because I'll tell you that as far as how the characters interacted with the world and how they mentally coped with the pandemic, I identified more with David than with Michael. Yes. Do you identify more with Michael than with David? I identified more with Michael as far as coping with the pandemic, but I don't know. There would be certain arguments, and you and I don't argue angry, but we, we can definitely have debates about things that are probably not that important. Sure. And I will say the style of debate wherein David Tennant remains completely calm Mm -hmm. going, what do you mean? Who says, and Michael Sheen immediately says like, everyone in the world. I'm like, okay, Kaylee. Like, you would would take it there. Because Michael within this relationship is way more pedantic and I own it. I know that's me. (laughs) So yeah, I think that I'm probably the Michael within this relationship, but there is one one scene in the second season where they're doing a crossword puzzle together which is a very cute little thing to do with your friend over zoom and michael makes like a subtle little joke that says why don't you be down and i'll be cross and then david's like oh is that a joke you're the cross one and i'm the down one and i feel like in general across my life i'm always the down one that's why david sort of from the wearing the same hoodie every day to there's this one line in the second season that just totally was like an arrow to my heart because it's exactly how i feel which was his wife says normality beckons babe and he says later on in the conversation it's just that normality beckons a little less urgently for me And then Mm -hmm. there's another thing in the first season where he's talking to his wife and he says, I expected Michael to be a bit more discombobulated. And she says, why? And he says, because I'm a bit more discombobulated. And like, that is so real. I very much identify with that aspect of the character. But yeah, I I can be a bit of a pretentious blowhard. It's funny because the you be down and I'll be cross also made me kind of think... I knew that we wouldn't have a definitive answer. I knew we'd have all the same, like, well, you're more this way, I'm more that way. But I still thought that, um, cut this part. I don't know what my point is. Oh, no, 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 it's totally cool. Look, I feel like in, in doing this podcast after so long of not doing it, and that's, that's something that I will take responsibility for because over the last year, you know, like so many people over the whole world, I've been depressed. But I feel like also I don't have the excuse of the pandemic. I feel like I was depressed before, but the pandemic sort of offered a nice cover for me to not feel pressured to create anything, even though creating things is the only thing that makes me less depressed. So it's a very self-defeating little spiral I get myself into. But in the final episode of the show... David has an acting job and when he's about to go away to location to shoot it he says that you know he's afraid like what if I've forgotten how to act and then he says that he feels flabby not physically but in terms of his craft and that's how I feel about so much that's how I feel about talking to people in real life that's how I feel about existing as a body in a public space and it's how I feel about recording this podcast even though talking to you is like the easiest thing in the world I'm suddenly very self-conscious like can I do it entertainingly anymore I don't know yes 
that very much resonated with me as well. And I do, for as much as I do love the outbursts and the arguments that they have on Mm -hmm. this show, because they're very funny Mm -hmm. and they're chaotic as hell Mm -hmm. and petty, I do just enjoy the shots of Michael just looking out a window Mm -hmm. or the shots of David where he's just lying on a couch, like not speaking Mm -hmm. and they're just staring at each other. There's some kind of line, I think, of David's toward the end of the first season. The line was something about like, this is how I'm spending the end of the world is staring at a screen talking to you. What an anticlimactic way to spend the end of the world. That's been another really confusing and stressful element of this whole thing. And, you know, as you said, when you look at the entire world, we've had an A minus A pandemic experience. But yeah, the way that I would just be alone in an apartment Mm -hmm. and at the beginning we were told like, go home and don't leave the house and don't touch anything. And I went, yes, sir. I will not leave the house and clean everything that I touch, even though I've not left the house. (laughs) Um, That was awesome. But like, what a weird way to spend the perceived end of the world is just like alone in your house, wiping things down. Yeah. You know, (laughs) that was something else that I really appreciated about watching the first season almost exactly a year later than when it aired is that it captures that specific moment because June 2020 is so different from June 2021 and like those early Mm -hmm. days when we really didn't know when we were sanitizing our groceries and I feel like now I've gotten into a pretty good routine and I know how I am and how, how I exist as a person within this pandemic but we recorded the last half of our last season and we were like getting really loopy when when it was like early days you know we, we recorded our bottom episode like I think two weeks or three weeks into lockdown and like I don't know man like my brain was like a freaking roller coaster all the time there was a point when you told me that you had been embracing your hotness experimenting with makeup and taking sexy photos of yourself in the bathroom mirror and meanwhile I was on the other end of the spectrum sorry if that's like embarrassing to you I can cut that it's not I just miss that version of myself oh, because sure. she's gone but go ahead well no but see the I was on the exact opposite end of the spectrum where there was a day when I was like should I cover the mirrors in my apartment? I don't want to see my face anymore. (laughs) That was like really, really dark days. And that was when I wasn't seeing anybody. Like I finally, in June of last year, realized that my sister and her boyfriend and my parents, we've all been isolating so completely that we formed a little pod. And that was truly life-saving because if I had just spent a whole 15 months in this space, oh, I'd be even loopier and less competent of a talker and a human than I am right now. Yeah, it got real weird, man. Totally. So the reason why they're even rehearsing this play over Zoom is because of this dork Simon. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't talked about Simon. And I know that I'm not saying anything out of line when I say I loved hating Simon. Because... Simon was essentially making them push on and rehearse this show that he's directing because he assumed this is all going to be done in six weeks and then they'll have a show and everybody else will be, you know, shit out of luck because they didn't spend the six weeks doing anything. And it's funny because you're thinking, ha ha, yeah, Mm -hmm. we all thought this would be six weeks, but... After maybe week two, I kind of thought this is not going to be uh, a month off work, yeah. dude. This is going to be really fucked up. So that's number one. And then number two is like, I don't know about you and, and your work situation, but I definitely have Simons early on who mm-hmm. just wanted to create busy work and mm. they would drag other people into it because 
now is the time and Mm -hmm. I know how to come up with a great way to increase this profit element of our company and let's add an extra meeting during the week. And it's like, (laughs) dude, you're freaking out right now. Yeah. So am I, but I'm not freaking out about work. I am totally fine to have nothing to do work-wise. Yeah. (laughs) So... Don't drag me into it, fucking Simon. God forbid we allow our employees to process their trauma and take care of their kids. You you gotta feed the beast of productivity. I will say that this is a different thing because these guys would otherwise have been completely unemployed. And also, having an artistic job, you don't take a role in a play unless you love being an actor and doing plays. And you don't take a job directing something unless that's what you truly want to do. I don't think that either of us is doing something right now with our day jobs that we would still do even if we weren't paid to do it. And that's true for most of the world. You're kind of right with that, but do you sense that Michael and David actually want to rehearse this play? Well, no, they're definitely dragging their feet a lot, but I think that ultimately they seem to be grateful to have a distraction and something to do during that time. Because when it's just them with their families and with no end in sight and nothing to put their energy towards, that's when people really do start to go a little bit crazy. I'm not saying that like they were super itching to be working on six characters in search of an author, but speaking of just like needing things to do and being busy, I want to talk about some stuff from the pilot because that I think is the most perfect little relatable time capsule because it's not about being an actor and it doesn't get super meta yet like in the second season where you see the show within the show. Mm. (laughs) When Michael shows his painting and David shows his sketched pineapples. <laughs> that was something that I found so relatable and delightful because a lot of people, have, at least I'm hearing about on social media, have been using the pandemic to learn a new skill and to like pick up an instrument or a foreign language or you know put some sort of creative output. They've been doing a lot of baking, learning new recipes, blah, blah, blah. My own family has taken up drawing. My mom has drawn several hundred drag queens from all of the different RuPaul franchises around the world. And she just started an Instagram, Prince of Queens. And she's going to start an Etsy, Prince, P-R-I-N-T-S. How cute. Yeah, no, they're really great. I'm just, I'm going to pimp my mom here because she's incredible. Like she does like six a day and they're freaking unreal. But We can um, pimp your mom. Yeah, I know she'd do the same for me. (laughs) But yeah, meanwhile, I definitely identified with the sketchy pineapples. I'm sometimes kind of trying to do something and it ends up looking like something that a child could do. And it's very embarrassing. And then later on, when uh, David reacts to that, Michael says, are you angry with me for having a hobby? And David says, well, evidently, yeah. And I just, (laughs) that's where I feel like I am definitely a David. Yeah, I thought that was such a fair question, actually. Are you angry at me for having a hobby? Yeah, but no, but it's, it's so shitty of me. It's so shitty, but also so human of me to be angry with people for having a hobby or for having like a really great pandemic like I've had a socially pretty good pandemic and a not super mentally taxing or emotionally taxing pandemic and a not scary pandemic in terms of health or finances but the people who are like the people who are like Adrian Lester who in his cameo appearances this time is a gift I'm just like Fuck you. And I I know that I should use the energy that I spend hating them and being jealous of them to improve my station in life, but uh, that's not how my brain works. Well, I mean, if you don't mind getting getting personal with it, how did you spend the pandemic? 
And I want to qualify that by saying, with the understanding that it is in no way over. But like, yeah, deep, how, how have deep lockdown, I spent the waiting for a vaccine, waiting for good news of any kind, waiting for frickin' clockwork orange to leave the White House. You know, how did you like spend it? I watched a lot of movies. I watched a lot of TV shows. Bravo was my best friend because that's exactly the level of complexity that I was able to consume. I stopped reading. I used to read all the time on the subways, but even when I would specifically carve out some time since I wasn't taking subways anymore, it was like Jeremy in Peep Show reading Wuthering Heights. I think I struggled through like two books last year when normally I'd read like 40. Mm -hmm. The one really good thing is that I did rekindle a lot of long distance friendships that I have, as I alluded to before, because if everybody's stuck in their home, a friendship that you have down the street is also a long distance relationship, then why not? strike things up with like my friend Lee in Australia or my friend Marissa in California or you like it's been so great talking to you I have to say yeah life-saving and sanity preserving ish but like yeah if I were to you know have to write like an essay how I spent my summer vacation how I spent my plague year oh god I don't know I can't really justify the time just like a lot of doom scrolling worrying about the election worrying about all of the other stuff that I used to be worried about, plus COVID. You know, it's it's not been a good year, but I also feel like it hasn't been a significantly worse year for me than other years of my life. Whereas other people, I think, who either experienced extreme trauma and loss this year, or people who liked their lives before more. I There's very little that I miss right now, actually. And mm. I'm actually sort of scared or when things do kick back up again, even, you know, risks of transmission aside, just because I don't want to lose the Zoom social life that I've had. And I feel like everybody's going to want to go back to only seeing people that are geographically convenient for them. That makes sense. Yeah. How about you? How did I spend the pandemic? Yeah. Well, uh, hearing Busy Phillips talk about one of her pandemic journeys on um, the Los Culturistas podcast the other day, mm -hmm. Busy Phillips talked about being in front of a mirror in early March and looking at her body and going, this is the body I always wanted. And then lockdown happened and she was able to maintain that through June before things got weird. And that is exactly what happened with me. Oh, wow. I feel like I was taking sexy selfies and working out and only eating Horta and Fossilakia. Mm -hmm. Then June happened, the BLM protests made shit like way more real because I don't know. It was kind of really easy to only focus on the fucking germ. Yeah. And then other stuff started to sink in and this crushing reality of like, this is how the president reacts to this. Oh my God. Yeah. I forgot that we may be renewing his shit contract. Mm -hmm. Oh no. And um, I stopped working out and shaved my head. So yeah, I kind of feel like I had my shit completely together until June. Mm. And then it got a little weird. But come August, I discovered Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood several times a week was a great way to uh, just kill several hours at a time. Cleaning my stove, cleaning mm. my bathtub... I kept going through like my makeup collection mm -hmm. and throwing a bunch of shit away. Oh my God, throwing away condoms. Oh. There are still six salvageable ones that are in my drawer because I have until Halloween or New Year's Eve. Ooh, you know what? <laughs> I, have, I have a suggestion for you. If you have a sexually active friend who's in a relationship, you could do like a trade-in program where it's like, hey, 
I've got these condoms that are going to expire before I can use them. Would you give me some from your stash that'll be good for another few years? You know what? <laughs> that makes me want to tell a story. Do it. That I sh- Okay. Um, I did give away a ton of the condoms that were going to be expiring in the next couple months. Mm-hmm. I gave them to a good friend and um, turned out that her partner's penis is too big for them. Aw, isn't it ironic? So just all of the knives to the, like, I'm going to do a good thing, and I'm not going to be jealous of my friend who's going to have sex. In fact, I'm going to encourage this because (laughs) she deserves it. We all deserve a good time. How'd those condoms work? His penis was too big (laughs) for them. Okay, I'm also going to let that one just roll off my back. (laughs) I'm a better person than I was a year ago because I really tried to be. Um, Wait, okay, question. Did that hurt because you weren't actually able to help, or did it hurt because you're jealous? and you care about size. Of course I wish I had access to a... I'm sorry, a dick that's too big for regular condoms? That's terrifying. You don't find that terrifying? Oh, I mean, at this point, who knows where we'll be? Let me try it once. Come on. (laughs) Oh my god. This is another way in which you and I are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Even though we are on the exact same end of the spectrum in terms of caution and in terms of like how we lived our lives, not going to restaurants, not having, you know, even socially distanced visits with people, being insanely good about the hand washing and the mask wearing and everything. But like, as far as, I don't know, you know how like sometimes you're really hungry and you want to eat food because like that's your body's natural response. That's correct. But then other times you're so hungry and you go for so long without food that you stop being hungry and the idea of food makes you want to throw up. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I'm at with all of normality. Okay. That's where I am with work. That's where I am with seeing people in person. That's where I am with boys. That's where I've been for a while with boys, if I'm honest. That's where I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel excited for anything in the future. And that's something that's hard. And that's something that I think a lot of people were maybe more in the same boat earlier on, like before the vaccine, before there seemed to be a flicker of light at the end of the tunnel, even though I'm still very suspicious of that light. There's a sense of hopelessness that, again, I identified with David, and he had another really crushing quote. It was when he was talking to one of the Michaels that is auditioning in the second season for when they are going to be replaced as themselves for an American (laughs) adaptation, which is such a silly but very fun premise for a second season. And he says, I'm feeling inert. I move through time like a dust mode, floating, present, but entirely without impact. And I grabbed my pen to write that one down because, oh boy, uh, me too. I want to give you a hug. I want to give you a hug. I wish I could give you a hug. Someday, man. I want to give you a hug and get you excited. Oh my. (laughs) I did really appreciate that the second season, I thought they did a really smart thing, which was to say, surprise, it's a show within a show. And now we're going to talk about the show. This is going to be super meta because I don't know if a second season of, oh God, I hate this play would have been as amusing as the brand new tension and conflict that was brought in with the entire cast remaining the same except for the two of them. <laughs> oh yeah, what a what a great little knife to the heart. And oh my god, can we just talk about 
one of my favorite guest stars was Michael Palin. That was such a wonderful surprise. And he was so mean. And that was he just was brilliant. So and that's, again, where it just reminds me so much of extras because these celebrities were coming on and either playing into or directly against our conceptions of him. Because Michael Palin, by all accounts, is the nicest man who ever lived. And uh, they said, oh, did you see the show? And he said, oh, yeah, loved it. You know, for what it was. Later on, he talks about how he doesn't like it. And someone says, oh, so there was no improv in Python? And he says, no, we were quite disciplined. You know, we just worked on it in the writing, follow the script, respected the craft. And like, that's the ultimate nightmare is for your idol to see something that you make and hate it. And uh, that hurt in a great way. <laughs> and yet it made me like David Tennant, Michael Sheen, and even <laughs> that nervous fucker Simon <laughs> for just going ahead and calling out like a legit criticism of the show that someone might have. Mm -hmm. They know that this was something that they could only do in this context and they did it. And the criticism of, oh, I loved it for what it was. I love that they just threw that out there. Let's go ahead and get it out of the way. We know that this is not necessarily going to be everybody's favorite show, but uh, it's something we fucking did and it was fun. To rewind, the first celebrity cameo that was is, my other favorite. <laughs> we learn that Michael Sheen had actually replaced the original person that was cast in his part in this play that Simon's directing. And so there's some drama surrounding informing him that he's not going to be in the show anymore. And Simon's saying, like, I don't want to speak to him. He's very intimidating. And you're kind of wondering... Are we, are we going to have a celebrity cameo? Are we going to even see anybody else? And then we reveal that David says, I'll talk to him. And it is fucking Samuel L. Jackson. So funny. And just, you know, informing him that Michael Sheen has replaced him. And the reaction of who the fuck is Michael Sheen oh, so, was so good. It was great. That was actually my favorite episode of the whole show because it's very tight farce. There's some funny sneaky two-way calls where David is put on the spot and he doesn't know that the other person is listening and he's caught in a lie. Yes. It's very clever, very silly. And again, this is where they do better than extras because Samuel L. Jackson was my least favorite cameo in that because they didn't use him at all. Exactly. And here he had the chance to be genuinely funny and not just an intimidating stand-in for all black people to make the nervous white people feel awkward about the subject of race. It was exactly so, so funny. I think the next episode is when we have Adrian come in mm -hmm. and Adrian Lester has joined the cast in a role that may or may not even exist yet. They <laughs> yes. are very comfortable with kind of just making things up as they go along with a scripted play. Well, his whole reason for being brought in isn't even necessarily to improve the play. It's just so that he will talk Simon up to these two stars who don't respect him at all. Oh, was that it? I missed Yeah, that. Simon is like, oh yeah, sure, there's a part for you. And he's like, really? Because the only roles are like for the stepdaughter and the mother or whatever. And he's like, oh, well, we'll figure something out. But could you talk me up and just say that you liked working with me or whatever? And then, of course, he doesn't mention him at all in the conversation as they talk about their pandemic experiences. He says that when he gets frustrated, he speaks to his life coach or he will go for a run. And it's just like... That experience of being like, okay, I'm I'm happy for you. You've done nothing wrong, but holy lord, <laughs> am I doing this wrong or are you a annoying person? <laughs> 
Oh, well, I mean, the initial quote about the time being a gift, he's very obviously lying because he says that his life coach tells him to ignore it. So now whenever I'm feeling sad or angry or powerless, I just ignore it. Or sometimes I'll go for a run. And then they say, oh, how far do you run? And he says 20 miles a day. And then at some point, the conversation gets too heavy and real. And so he says, I'm going to go for a run. Mm -hmm. So like, he's clearly not actually doing fine at all. And I think that perhaps a more generous interpretation of other people's responses to the pandemic that I'm like, I hate you because you learned how to bake. They're not, they're broken on the inside. I'm just broken on the inside and on the outside. And some people are really, really trying to keep together a happy, healthy, normal facade in an unprecedented situation that none of us have been before. Oh no, that was, that was clear <laughs> to me too. But the initial reaction from David and Michael to all of this information is like you they, they do seem disgusted by this person who's handling everything right i don't i don't think so because i think that the how far do you run 20 miles a day that's like he's tipping his hand pretty early whether he means to or not and the, the way that he first talks about that is that he's talking about a dream i was on stage and i was in chains and there was a bear it was like this really horrifying nightmare scenario and then his reaction is just to repress it. And I think, again, this is something that we can blame patriarchy for, is uh, men not knowing how to deal with their sad, bad emotions and just burying them until they explode in usually a very unhealthy way that's damaging not just to them, but to others. This is completely fucking true. Mm -hmm. And the bragging about, I'm able to ignore it, why aren't you able to ignore it? You are the one who needs to be fixed here because you are crying when you're sad. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a male thing, certainly. I think it's also a British thing. Yeah. But also an American thing. Like, we're not necessarily as culturally, we don't have a reputation for being as repressed with our emotions as they do but we do have a long and gross history of forced positivity yep and that's something that uh you know i've bumped up against a number of times in the last year and it just makes me want to burn the world down but i don't i just sit and cry and i deal with my feelings like an adult <laughs> It's been interesting watching this show, watching Michael Sheen and David Tennant, who are actors and therefore not your average guys, but when they're having their conversations and just being guys because their their wives are in the other room and their and their girlfriends in the other room and their girlfriends just don't understand them in this yeah. exact moment and blah blah blah. It's funny because even when they're completely calm, they are still so extra to me. They just have that yeah. theater flair. I was really genuinely tickled and touched by their friendship. I found their chemistry to be so delightful. Mm -hmm. And again, an impressive feat to do over Zoom. Oh yeah. It made me happy. And like sometimes they were definitely being guys while the women were tending to the children and doing all of the, you know, important work that they're not going to ever lift a finger to do. And we'll discuss that in a minute. <laughs> but also they were just being friends and people and like having the sorts of conversations that I've been having with a lot of my mostly female friends over the last year. Mm -hmm. Early on in the series, there's a lot of jokes made about how the men are so unhelpful. Georgia, for example, she's writing a novel and also raising five kids and keeping house while her husband is depressed and sort of useless. And she asks for his help while she finishes her last chapter or something. And it's like, ah, the fact that she has to ask her husband to look after the children that are his. This show really kind of made me not want to ever get married or have a family. The way that the world is set up, because I need to be the David in a relationship. I need to be the useless, depressed one, and I can't handle an umpteenth 
child in addition to the literal children that I would hypothetically have. I, it's just too much. As we've discussed, you and I have both been spending this pandemic isolating by ourselves. And in a lot of ways, that's been very challenging. But to hear everybody that I know who has been living with someone, they're jealous of us. And my jealousy of them doesn't extend beyond, oh, like my back hurts, I wish someone could rub it. Or, oh, there's a spider, I wish someone could get it for me. Like apart from a couple of, you know, inconvenient moments a week, yeah, I've been I've been pretty good, but like my mom's like the way your dad chews, it's like he's got a hollow head, ah, you know, and and they're so upset by the noises and by the lack of help with like you're not taking out the recycling. Why do I have to beg you to do every little thing to help me even if it's only a very small percentage? Ugh. Better to just do everything oneself and be lonely sometimes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, not for really a moment did I ever wish that I was spending the pandemic with a another person. And by another person, I mean anyone. I know that I could have said, fuck it, I am just going to weather this thing out at my parents' place. They've got AC, they've got a large television, but I never was actually tempted to do it, even though I would have been welcome. I never thought like, oh, I wish I were spending this time with a lovely boyfriend or a lovely roommate. I never thought about that. This show did not make me think too much about not wanting to get married or ever have a partner or family ever, because those are just thoughts that enter my mind off and on anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and this show didn't feel particularly horrible about all that. But yeah, I mean, I obviously noticed that dynamic, but that also just kind of falls into the category of what I said earlier, of feeling like I was in quarantine with these guys and that, yeah, they could be fucking annoying sometimes. And that was definitely part of it. Also, imagine being Anna, who's 25 years old. <laughs> Man. Imagine that being your life at 25. You have Michael Sheen's baby and he's a 50-year-old fucking master thespian. Man, 20. I'm trying to think back to where I was at 25. I was an I was, idiot. I was, I was working at American Apparel. And uh, that that's enough of a set. I was working at American Apparel. That's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was unemployed and having frequent oh, panic attacks. Like, yeah, 25. Yeah. Maybe maybe I would have been very tempted to go move to Wales and live with Michael Sheen. That might have seemed like an upgrade. I would not have had the wherewithal to go, let's really think about what that would mean for the rest of my days. I don't know. I mean, I, as far as the like, oh, it makes me not want to ever have kids. Like I said, this isn't the thing that like planted the idea in my head. Like you, it's an idea that sort of floats through my head yeah. and then out of it again. But this made a pretty strong argument in the in the con column for that whole thing. There was an article that I read early on in the pandemic that was something like other countries have social safety nets. The U.S. has women. And obviously with this show, we're not talking about the U.S., but it just it was this really hard article about how all of the you know all of the issues of inequality across the board but this one specifically concentrated on on women's issues have been exacerbated by the pandemic and how stressful it is for women to be responsible for all of the domestic duties and also zoom teaching and also remote work when not, and then their husband gets to do remote work and not really help out with the rest of the stuff and there were some real upsetting horror stories but I, I don't even want to go into them here but it just it just like ugh, why do men have to suck so much they're so pretty I want to like them I really really do want to like them I'm biologically wired to like them I hear you I mean look 
even on this very podcast, we've had plenty of conversations rallying around the idea of, I hate men, men are the worst, let's rag on them, but oh my god, I want to fuck Jeremy so bad. Like, we, that is pretty much, like, the way that the show goes, right? But I can't go full-on misandrist. I know, because you have brothers. Because I have brothers, (laughs) and also because I feel like that is in opposition to everything I believe in politically, which is progress. Yeah, and and I so know, I, I right. kind of feel like I just can't give up on men the same way that I don't want people of color to selfishly give up on me because they totally could. Yeah. When it comes to these power structures that no individual I know set up, you know, and they're very, very shitty. And within those power structures, we are all oppressed oppressors. It's just very easy for, you know, cishet white dudes to get away with it because they run everything. So yeah. that's obviously frustrating, but I, I cannot go into full on I hate all men mode, even though maybe it'd be liberating. I don't know. It's not really liberating. It's, it's choosing the angry thing that feels good in the moment. You're taking the responsible, mature, long sighted tack. Whereas I'm like, I want to punch you right now. Not that I've ever literally punched anybody, but you know. There was a guy at my work who I think maybe after a month, May of last year, asked our boss during a Zoom meeting, when do you think we can come back? Mm. And at that point, it was like, why would our boss know when we can come back if the CDC is saying, <laughs> we don't know, dude, this is really fucking bad. Thankfully, the, the boss man did say like, look, not soon. What are you talking <laughs> about? Um, but I just kind of thought like, I wonder if all of these dads are like, I can't work this way, I can't do this, I can't live this way. But I will say there is a guy at the company who's a dad, and I'm proud of him because I work very goddamn closely with him. But whenever there's a Zoom meeting called, half the time he is driving somewhere. And people make jokes like, oh, going for a joyride, I see, big shot. Um, (laughs) But the answer is he's schlepping his kids back and forth to places. And he said to me on the phone just last week, people can make jokes about that all they want. I don't feel bad about it. I'm taking my kids somewhere. And there I just go. thought, That's like, yes, you are you are actively parenting. <laughs> Marry me. That's yes. sweet. We need more active dads who don't view parenting as, like, an extra bonus thing that they can get a cookie for because it's so outside of their duties. Oh, but that brings me to another fun celebrity cameo, Whoopi Goldberg, yes. who got to play a <laughs> fictional character, Mary. She's their agent, and she is rumored to have once beaten a client to death with his own Golden Globe. <laughs> there is a great scene where Michael and David have been asked to speak with their potential replacements to give them a sense of the show and their characters, but they keep purposely sabotaging all their conversations with their replacements because they are bitter and jealous as hell. Of course, Mary gets wind of all these conversations they're having with their replacements and how they're just being dicks about it. So they know they're in trouble when they're waiting for her on this Zoom call. So Michael wheels his sleeping infant into the room to to look like just the most sensitive, relatable, <laughs> oh, I couldn't possibly have sabotaged anyone. I, I have a baby. It was so <laughs> fucking Titanic, wasn't it? But, but it's oh like, my God, it's, you're right. it's I was... <laughs> your baby. It's actually your baby. I was thinking of Republicans where it's like, I can't be a misogynist. I have a daughter. I can't be a rapist. I have a daughter. There's that too. But yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I have a child. I have a child. I loved all of the celebrity cameos, both those playing themselves, which was most of them 
than those playing fictional characters. And I wanted to talk about something that is actually brought up a lot in the second season is the idea of how much was improvised versus how much was written. And you know, all of the credits, it says written by Simon Evans. And I think that this whole show is a lot like The Office in that way, where it sounds like it's written, but it feels like it's improvised because the delivery is just so natural and the chemistry is so easy. But then some of the American cameos, I don't like them less, but they do definitely feel improvised in a goofier, more heightened, less believable way. Like Ken Jong is a great example of that when he's saying, fuck you in it, fuck you in it. And it was very funny, but I was kind of like, this is just ever so slightly totally different than the first season. Ken Jong definitely had one of the zaniest cameos, even though I did get a chuckle oh, out I of loved it. it. <laughs> but I mean, as I already said, I found David and Michael to have lots of flair as it was. And so when, sure. when they would have their outbursts, I mm-hmm. would kind of go, okay, guys, very good improv here. <laughs> was Josh Gad wearing a ridiculous amount of eyeliner or what? <laughs> <laughs> That was like when you asked me in Holy Grail, did that monk have a pretty mouth? Like, I didn't consciously clock it, but now that you mention it, I'm looking back and it's like... Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Yes, he. it does seem that way. <laughs> yeah, he had, he had a ton of eye makeup on it. I was hoping that it would be called out because now it's like, was that a choice because you thought it would be funny? Or like, mm. were you just wearing that much eyeliner? Which I'm fine with guy liner. Everybody should wear more of it. I love it. I was disappointed you and McGregor didn't have some guy liner on because he used to rock that. Oh yeah, you and... I love when they bring Judy Dench in. Mm-hmm. She's sent in by Simon to help David and and Michael get along and focus on the play because for a while they're talking about maybe quitting the show. They don't want to do it anymore. And they send in Judy Dench. And one of them actually says like, holy fuck, it's Judy Dench or, or something <laughs> like that, which is, you know, the appropriate reaction. <laughs> and something you and I have talked about during lockdown and a little bit before, but like really in depth for a couple days in, in lockdown was the idea of feminine power hmm. and how there's this entirely too popular idea that like, oh, well, women have all the power because they're hot. And if you want to get some free slurpees at 7-Eleven, just flash your boobies and the man will become a a quivering mess and he won't know what to do and you can just move (laughs) through life doing that and people buy you drinks and you can flash your cleavage at the doorman and get into a club and it's like oh yay I can do all of that (laughs) but yeah the idea that like a waiter thinks you're cute and will bring you some extra bread. Like, oh, that's your power, baby. Bread is free. What the fuck restaurant is this? I just said bread, (laughs) dude. I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. (laughs) But I think that the way Judy Dench comes in and like whips their asses without ever raising her voice or using an insult or getting emotional the way that she's able to say like, Essentially, you boys are going to get along and you're going to do this play because you said you would and because you're actors. Mm -hmm. And they are both terrified of this. And I know that a lot of that comes with her being Judy Dench. But they're both just like, oh, well, that's the fucking end of that conversation. Mm -hmm. That to me is female power. The ability Mm -hmm. to come into a situation and say, here's what we have to do. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And that's the end of that. Like... We know that we're not going to get far if we start yelling because they're not going to be afraid. Right. But if we just say like, here's the plan and do it because you have to because you're men. I do think that's a closer representation of like 
female power. We haven't talked about Joe yet. No. Who's another one of the fictional characters played by Nina Sosanya. She plays the producer of this play that they're all working on. And she admonishes Simon in a way that, like, reduces him to a little boy, which he already kind of is, because he's, like, the lowest on this totem pole in all respects. But she just says something about, like, why, where are you in rehearsals? What's been going on here? And he's, like, kind of answering in a circular fashion. And then she says, I don't need somebody hanging their head in shame. I just need somebody to do something for me, all right? Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of you, really? And she's not screaming her head off, but she's raising her voice in a way that men think is raising her voice a lot more. Mm -hmm. And men are very afraid of women expressing emotions, and especially afraid of women of color who are really not supposed to express emotions, express emotions. And so, yeah, like the black female producer is a, a very powerful presence. But then also later on when we see a similar thing when Simon is having a conversation with Georgia because towards the end of the second season, Michael and David aren't on speaking terms anymore. And she says, you know, when David doesn't talk to Michael, he talks to me and I can't have that. I need you to fix this because you're the one who broke it. And then he says, oh, I've never seen you like this before. Seen me like what? Angry. And she's like, I'm not angry. Do you want to see me angry? And he's like, no, it's just, it's always hilarious and depressing to me how frightened men are of women. When we pose them literally no threat in any possible sense, it's like the elephant being afraid of the mouse. Not I that I'm still, comparing I would still, I would still rather be powerful in that way. <laughs> that's, my, that's my only point here is like, I've oh, just, no, I understand. I've never tried the route that is allegedly a route because I think that that's kind of BS. It is. It's um, demeaning. But otherwise, coming in when a David Tennant-like man is feeling helpless and being like, here's a list of ways that you're going to get some task done and you're going to do it now and I'm going to tell you this one time in my firm voice like I, I find that that can work I did love the scene with Judy Dench and when she says you said yes so stop fucking about we're actors when we say yes we do the bloody job I was like yeah why is any actor ever a pain in the ass on any project ever? And and when I say actor, I specifically mean male actors because a lot of the times women can get a reputation for being difficult when really they're dealing with all kinds of horrible like behind the scenes abuse that we're not aware of. But like if you're say a Christian Bale, for example, like what possible fucking reason do you ever have for yelling at somebody when you are on top of the world, you are making tons of money doing the thing that you love and have wanted to do since you were a child? Like, yeah, why is anyone ever a diva? This is a power thing too, because sometimes people acquire a smidgen of power, even if your power is, I'm Christian Bale, which is just <laughs> dumb. So people acquire a smidgen of power, it goes to their heads, and then they do things because they can. And I just wonder what it would be like to choose to be an asshole because you can. What rage must you carry with you all the time if this is something that you've always wanted to do is be mean the rage of, of a little boy who's not allowed to feel sadness and told that men don't cry and you have to suck it up and toughen up and be a man like it's all it's by all what terrible. rage i meant like what profound rage you know yeah the world is so messed up how do we fix it i don't know dude <laughs> i mean you and i had some good ideas the other day when we brainstormed what we would do if we were if we just happened to be billionaires oh, that's right, a fun yeah. conversation it's the most ridiculous pastime because there is no path that i could take with my life from this point forward that will result in me being a billionaire or even a multimillionaire. like that is just not in the cards for me in this lifetime but still i can dream i can dream about how i'd solve climate change and help with equality and all that good yeah shit. 
No, it would be awesome to be like a renegade billionaire Amelie. Yes. Oh, I love that. Oh, can we see that sequel? <laughs> <laughs> she's now a billionaire and she's still just doing like cute secret little little favors for people. Unless she's yeah. trying to make someone question their sanity. That was happening as well. Oh, right. Well, she could do that to like Mitch McConnell. When we watched Amelie during the pandemic, I was then inspired to... <laughs> <laughs> this was my little craft. Ooh. I told you I started acquiring a lot of fucking crystals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I had these crystals that I just didn't like. I wasn't really vibing with them. And I mean this sincerely. Okay. And so I put them in this like mesh little bag with a drawstring. And then I took a piece of paper from a notebook and I did like what we used to do in school if we had assignments where it was like, write a letter as if you worked in a mission and you would dye it with tea or coffee and then burn the edges so that it looked old. Yes. So I did that with a piece of paper, but it was stupid of me because I tried burning it before I soaked it. So for a while I just had like burning paper in my hand and I was going, I don't know what to do. Um, so, so I had to start over, but yeah, I like, I dyed it with some coffee and I burned the edges. And then I wrote like, mm. Hey, these are some crystals that have never been used and they're there for you. Do what you will. And I, I just put that in the drawstring and then I walked around my neighborhood and I thought I'm gonna see who would be receptive to like someone leaving a bag of crystals in front of their house <laughs> and so I found a house with this van parked in the driveway and I think there were some smiley sun faces and peace sign mm -hmm. stickers and they mm -hmm. had painted rocks around a tree growing in front of their house and the rocks mm -hmm. said like peace and love and I thought I'm gonna just leave this right here Oh, nice. And the rush I got from that, I gotta say, made me wish I had extra crystals that I didn't like. If you do at some point have extra crystals that you don't like, I think that you should bury them under a mushroom next to a tree. This is a reference to a bad movie that we watched together called Fateful Findings. Oh, and then maybe some kids will discover it and have a magical day. <laughs> Well, it's always like, I hope someone discovers this and has a magical day. I want to hear more like fun, quirky, goofy quarantine stories. Like, do you have any more weird pandemic behaviors that you've picked up or like random journeys that you went on? Well, I shaved my fucking head. That's right. Making you even more definitively the Eddie. Whereas my hair got longer and greasier and I got a bit of a paunch. So yeah, we just really transformed. <laughs> um, so I fucking shaved my head in June because I was like, well, I'm staring at these four walls and it's just me. How do I make myself interesting to look at? <laughs> so that was cool. If you are a lady and you're like, oh no, I can't be attractive if I shave my head. Do it. If you want to do it, do it. I cannot recommend it enough. I, again, have sort of gone the opposite direction. Like... No more shoes, no more bras, no more makeup, no more giving a fuck, no more pants. Oh my god. Oh, that's another reason that I identified with David is that he wears the same gray hoodie. I've had two pairs of pants over the last year. There's my winter pants, which are black and velvety, and there's my summer pants, which are loose and rainbow tie-dye. Ooh! And that's when I bother putting on pants at all. Are you wearing pants right now? Well, actually, I'm glad that you asked, Stephanie, because in my, you know, paranoid, that's the wrong, superstitious, whatever, <laughs> rituals for, for the podcast, I'm wearing my velvet purple podcasting pants for the first time in a year. Oh, those it's are a, so cool! It's a little hot for them since it's summer, but I mean, I did it in the other summers before this, so I'll, I'll tough it out. I love it. Yeah. 
I'm not wearing pants. Well, good for you. If I had more faith in my ability to talk to my best friend in a non-live setting where we can go back and edit out the parts that are boring, I would I would not be wearing my superstitious purple velvet podcast pants. But uh, <laughs> but I don't feel that free at the moment. Oh, apropos of nothing, perhaps the most important thing about our lives over the last year is that I finally got this one to watch Toy Story 3 with me. I thought of that last night! I'm so glad that you brought it up! And tell me how you are a forever changed woman after that experience. Well, I think... Out of fairness, I need to say that it was me who texted you saying, would you want to watch Toy Story 3? Yes. And you sent back that gif of Kristen Bell with her hand over her heart. (laughs) And I have to say, everything I ever said, you know, I don't give a shit about those toys. It's just (laughs) toys. I already heard a little bit of the ending and it's not going to matter. Blah, blah, blah. I just have no interest. Like, what the fuck am I talking about? That's another huge <laughs> lesson I'm trying to to keep in mind post-pandemic. What the fuck Kaylee's am I talking right. about? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say that, like, the climactic scary sequence hit me a lot harder than I absolutely thought it would. And maybe some of that did have to do with, like, pandemic life, pre-election, lots of scary things coming up in the not-too-distant future. But yeah, but then there is a little bit more emotional stuff at the end that resonated with me as an adult, and I absolutely fucking melted, and I remember saying, fuck this, and grabbing Mm -hmm. a box of Kleenex, and... I, I blubbered. It was a blubbering. That was an important test and you passed. We can stay friends. Wow. What if I hadn't had any of those reactions? And and what if I had even just said, dude, that was boring? Well, then I think that you would definitively be the Michael and I would be the David. What? I don't know. It's <laughs> just... <laughs> because you'd have to be cross not to cry at that movie. I don't know. I don't know. I guess that's true. I yeah. guess that's true. Oh, and I also introduced her to some Fred and Ginger movies that she'd never seen before, because that's another recurring thing, is that I bring up Fred and Ginger and Busby Berkeley, and I think Doris Day a couple times, like, not super relevantly, to be fair, but now you're familiar with so many more things, and I'm more familiar with the early works of Adam Sandler. I was describing that double feature, Top Hat followed by Billy Madison. I was telling a mutual friend about it, and her reaction was, oh! I see. So you each picked a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously it was the two greatest cinematic achievements of the 20th century. Yes. Yeah, Stephanie and I, we just did a count. We have almost 100 movies under our belt over the last year, which is, I'm super proud of us for that. April of 2020 was when we started. We only watched three movies, but the movie that kicked off this entire little tradition that we have going now was Book Club. We Mm. watched that. Three days later, we watched Tiptoes, <laughs> yes. a movie with Matthew McConaughey and Gary Oldman. And Gary Oldman plays Matthew McConaughey's brother, who is a little person. Oh, my God. And then on the 25th, we watched Love Never Dies, which is the sequel <laughs> to The Phantom of the Opera. So we were just in the mood to trash on stuff do we have more to say about the actual show i feel like there's a lot more to say but i also feel like i sucked at note taking because again very out of practice with this listeners i really hope that you forgive me for being so rusty this is like everything this is just hard to do right now you know what 
I remember one of the greatest pieces of advice, because I think this could apply to everything I do. I need to go ahead and try to employ it more often. When I was training to be a studio tour guide at Universal Studios Hollywood, when I was 25 years old. Oh my God, you could have been (laughs) married to Michael Sheen at that point, but instead your life took a different path. And that path led you past Jaws and King Kong and others. (laughs) Yes, I was training to be a studio tour guide. And there was a day when we were practicing where you would just stand up in the tram and you would just be practicing with a small group of people who were also training, plus um, a certified like guide giving you Mm -hmm. notes. And you would be stuck behind other tour groups that were actually doing the damn thing. And so there was once where like I got a real good crash course in stalling because the (laughs) whole job when it's busy is stalling. And when we were wrapping things up, I made a couple little self-deprecating comments about thanks for listening to me ramble, et cetera, et cetera. And the person coaching us did tell me like, never apologize for it being busy. Never frame it like they just did you a favor by listening to you ramble. You just did this damn thing. It is your tour. For all they know, this went exactly how you wanted it to go. Do not apologize for your performance on that for any reason. So Kaylee, try that Uh, again. Okay. Um, I'm not sorry for anything. Fuck you all. (laughs) (laughs) Probably there's a happy medium somewhere between those two things. Okay, wait, speaking of stalling, this is a complete tangent, but um, I'm not very good at stalling, I learned. When my dad had a surprise party for, I believe it was his 65th birthday, he was still living in California, it was my job to get him out of the house. So I went out under the pretext of, my dad's gonna give me like a driving lesson, which I haven't done in like a decade. So people were supposed to arrive at noon, at nine o'clock, I'm still in my pajamas. He says, Kaylee, let's go out for a drive. And I was like, uh, wh- what? No, like this needs to happen a couple hours later. But he was just not taking no for an answer. It was still only like maybe 1030 by the time he wanted to go home. And so I kept trying to figure out ways to stall. I was calling my mom panicking, being like, oh, we have to go to Gelson's to get you a cake. And like we walked in the door, I swear to God, no financial transaction has ever transpired more quickly than my dad was able to point at a cake, somehow pay for it with like magic and then leave the door. Like I was just calling my mom and he was like, that cake, boom, we're out the door. I was like, how did that, we stalled for like maybe two minutes in this Gelson's. And then I was like panicking that the guests weren't at all ready to be there. So I got into the driver's seat, the way that he tells it, which I don't think is what I actually said, but like the family legend, of course, makes me look like a greater and greater idiot with each passing year was I'm tired I need to rest before I can drive (laughs) and that's not actually what I said but like I don't know what I actually said so who the fuck knows maybe I did say that and like my family has never stopped making fun of me for not being able to think of a better excuse after my dad's record-breaking haste in picking a cake I wouldn't have been prepared for that either at all although I will say like I don't know I don't know if your dad cooks does your dad cook (laughs) Stephanie he cooks like how he cooks like how David Tennant cooks like maybe he would reheat some lasagna with some chocolate shavings on it okay because I mean if it if it were my dad 
and I had to take him to a Gelson's to buy some time, I would have returned to that surprise party and people would have completely lost all of their energy and patience. We would have been in that Gelson's forever. Oh man. I don't think my dad like knows what food is. Like he, I don't think he's ever made himself a sandwich. Wow. It's really funny and sad how culinarily incompetent my dad is. And I think I inherited a lot from him in that regard, but at least I like, I have been feeding myself over the last year, so I can do it. You have been feeding yourself over the last year. Thank you. Yes, bare minimum. Good job. Pat on the back. Well, and you always have cheese, or at least lately you had cheese. Oh, I am a cheesitarian. I'm a vegetarian. Ooh. Ooh. Trademark. Not trademark. Feel free to use that. I stopped eating meat, too. I was preparing a Cornish game hen. (laughs) Speaking of culinary, I don't mean to be a dick like, well, I was preparing a Cornish game hen. No, no, please brag away. I'm impressed. It would have been about a year ago. I was preparing a Cornish game hen and I had Googled like, well, I bought a game hen. Now what do I do? And I was instructed to like, just rub the carcass with some butter. And the process made me really sad. I was like, I'm rubbing a dead body with butter. What the fuck is wrong with me? Um, (laughs) And then I thought, well, now you can't waste this food. So I still Mm. ate the game hen, but it was like the most joyless. Oh God, what have I done to to the chicky? Stephanie, when you had made that Cornish game hen, but didn't want to eat anymore, you should have just pulled another Amelie and like left it under the rock tree with some crystals and been like, here's a meal that I hope you consume in the next hour you know what why the fuck didn't i walk the cornish game hen to a homeless person yeah well unhoused next, person. next time in the end i do think i overcooked the cornish game hen because i realized i didn't have a meat thermometer but i was like well it doesn't matter because i kind of have an inkling this might be some of the last meat i eat for a while so yeah mm. it was just a little bit dry but mm. you know i mean i made it with potatoes I'm sure the meal itself was an average B plus. You preparing a Cornish game hen with potato. That's two, that's two separate things. That's like your equivalent of painting a beautiful landscape while I'm over here sketching a child's pineapple (laughs) (laughs) in the kitchen. God damn it. Well, I don't know. During, during quarantine, didn't you also write Entertainment Oligopoly? No, that was, I wrote that on a, on one of my last plane rides. That's right. Oh yeah. Oh, I can tell people about this because it's out on the internet now. AJ Holmes, my sometime collaborator and I were asked to write a song. It was going to be animated on YouTube. The pitch was that it's for a fictional musical called Streaming Wars, the musical. And it's basically Bob Iger and Mickey Mouse talking about the unveiling of Disney. Disney Plus, and they wanted it to be like a Disney villain song meets a Gilbert and Sullivan style patter song. And AJ brought this to me like two days before I was scheduled to go on a week long vacation to Italy with my friend Ebony. And I was like, oh, this sounds really great. But like, I've had this trip planned for many months and I still need to pack and learn Italian and have a day job in the meantime. So I don't know if I can do this. But then when he explained what it was, I was like, oh, fuck, I can't not. So I panicked and hated myself for 48 hours. And then I got on the plane and I fucking wrote it. And I'm very, very proud of it. And to this day, it's one of my greatest accomplishments is writing a lot of very difficult but funny triple rhymes that perfectly scans to modern major general on a goddamn plane. She did that, guys. 
I did. Yeah. Go to KayleeMcMahon.com for more. Oh, yeah. I also got a website. There we go. Yeah. And Stephanie, you're probably going to have a blog up and running soon. Yeah. I will probably have a blog up and running soon on Substack, which I can totally um, link to the show notes when this does eventually come out. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more weird, pervy content. And I'm going to include my recipe for Fossilakia. So fuck yes. Green beans. But not for Cornish game hens. No, not for Cornish game hens. Although maybe I will write about that experience as well. There will probably mostly just be long love letters to Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. Basically just a who's who of who I'm masturbating to. Speaking of you masturbating, we didn't really talk that much about like the men on this show in the sense of them being men that would make you adopt a Southern accent. That's Um, right. How do you talk? Tell me about your feelings. Okay. I thought that David Tennant looked hotter in the second season than he Hmm. did in the first season. His hair is just a little bit longer. You see the headband a little less often. Mm -hmm. The beard was working for me. And also, I do think that in the second season, I sort of preferred their fights. Hmm. I was just kind of more invested in their frustration in the second season because again I understood their justification for being so angry about not being invited to do that show and so when they were screaming about how they would exact revenge (laughs) and Anna came in with some advice being Swedish um, she had an old Viking saying actions are too often ruled by emotions and I did love David's anger in this scene when Mm -hmm. he says that seems a little bit hypocritical coming from the Vikings (laughs) and Anna says it's the only way to get close enough to do some real damage which again is I think a very female centric strategy once again, they're they're not going to be afraid of me if I come in with the anger. But if I just cuddle up to them, I will get close enough to casually poison their coffee when they do not suspect little old me. Yes, exactly. And this this also seems like your thing about like, oh, I don't want to hate all men. I want to forgive and figure out a way forward for us all to move under equality and rainbows, blah, blah, blah. Whereas I'm like, ah. I want to be angry right now. And like, I guess I don't have what it takes to be a Viking is my point. I will never be a feminist Viking. I'm so sad about it. (laughs) I would love to be a feminist Viking. I think my mom has some Viking blood. Oh. She was very excited about that when she got her DNA results back. Wow. Uh, Barbara the Viking. (laughs) Well, yeah. Doesn't it just make all the sense in the world that Barbara descends from Vikings? Oh my gosh. And then I also love like moments later, Simon is going to join the call and he appears on screen and David just says, ah, so that's where you've been hiding, you cunt. Because you can see that he's like outside somewhere in in Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he talks to Michael later. And Michael says, like, he's not a monster. And David says, he's a monster prick. I loved Mm. when he would get angry. That Mm -hmm. was hot. Because I felt like that was when he was the most Scottish sounding, too. Oh, yes. No, I know. There's, like, a direct correlation between how horny you are for someone and how Scottish they are. It does break my heart when actors have to, like, lose their dialects. Like, watching you and McGregor speak being the Scottish guy, I was like, your shit is so watered down from what it used to be. But... Well, the solution is for you to write a screenplay in which he plays a 100% Scottish dude and to cast him. And then 
fall in love with him and make your 14-year-old dreams come true. Ooh. I did want to talk about the last episode. Yeah, let's talk about the last episode. I found it very moving. My, Me too. I think that my mom and my sister said that they cried during it. I didn't cry, but I was touched by a couple of different things about it. One of them was when they are trying to wind down their last Zoom conversation before David has to go to his location. And you can just tell that they're stalling and they enjoy each other's company so much. And as soon as David like re-enters the real world and starts acting again, it's the end of an era and it's puncturing this lovely little bubble that they've created for themselves where they've been through so much together and argued and helped each other through surviving this like massively terrible time. And like I said, I just love their friendship in this so, so much and their reluctance to hang up even though like the car is waiting outside of the tenant's home and and it's also silly because you know he can still zoom from his hotel room he just won't have like all day to do it because he'll be on set acting but but yeah again that's like something that I'm not looking forward to is these sorts of relationships winding down and becoming less frequent as other people have like you know obligations and 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 you know joyful obligations in the real world but I thought that that was so sweet And then at the end, again, spoilers, they see each other through a car window and it's the first time that they're in person together. It's just so interesting because, again, it's not like this is the happy ending because it's not like this is the ending of the pandemic. We're still very much in it and the path forward is very uncertain and dark and we don't know what's going to happen. But it's a little bit awkward and weird because they can't really hear each other. They're shouting through the car window and then they roll it down, but they put on their masks, but then they can't really hear each other through the masks. And then Michael just says something like, I'll, I'll catch you on the computer. Like, we'll do this again. And it's really nice for them to have that little face-to-face interaction, but they're going to resume their friendship online for the foreseeable future. And I've had a couple of moments like that too with people where it's like waving through a window. Like when I first saw my parents, they were like dropping off a big thing of toilet paper, you know, in May. My mom got out of the car and we didn't touch, but like we waved. It was just so surreal. It's like this weird half measure. Yeah, I got choked up at that point too when when David was like, put your mask on and I'll roll the window down. There was something yeah. really just... I don't know, reality crashing back into my head of them of then putting yeah. the masks on because it did sort of follow very similar rhythms to how I sort of felt inside during the pandemic, you know, or right. earlier in it where you could eventually, you know, you're, you're just so bored and confused and stressed out that I could kind of forget why I was living the way I was living. Mm-hmm. It was just like, this is the new way I do things. I don't go to the office and I don't go anywhere really. And when I leave the house to take a walk, I put this mask on. I could just yeah. forget about like why. But then you would catch an Apple News headline or you would have an actual interaction with, with a person and you would put the mask on and be like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I forgot that this is why we're doing this this yeah. thing. And so, yeah, I loved that visual at the end. Also, during the Zoom call where David is on location in his hotel room and he's Zooming with Georgia, who's back at home, as well as Michael and Anna, who are at home. Mm-hmm. David figures out that he's only like 40 minutes away from Michael's house. Yeah. And he gets excited. He's like, should I come over? Mm-hmm. And the, the hesitancy was interesting. And Anna does say, like, no. And I'm sure there are perfectly good reasons why the answer in that moment is like, no, we've, we've got a one-year-old. It's erratic over here with people popping over. Plus, there is still a pandemic and you've just yeah, traveled. Yeah, it was and, pre-vaccination, and, yeah. But yeah, just the, like, it was all David wanted to do. And he had to be greated with, like, that, uh, whereas any other time, it'd be like, fuck yeah! 
let's tear it up, buddy. It was interesting. That last scene, again, it sort of placed this very silly heightened comedy that's exploring like, you know, the most privileged section of society and how they've been dealing with this very difficult, traumatic global event. And um, it just made me think, like, th this is a show that I liked enough that I will watch it again at some point in the future. Like, I will be like, oh, I could go for a good staged binge. That'll be fun. And I wonder how it will play in the future for people who didn't live through this time or for people who were much younger in this time. And I also have been thinking ahead about entertainment and, like, wondering at what point there will be things made about the pandemic after the pandemic is over. Or if, as a society, we're just going to collectively agree that, like, 2020 and 2021 didn't happen and we're just going to make movies like we used to before about other things that are not COVID-related. Because, I mean, I re do you remember there was a movie about 9-11 that came out, like, three years after 9-11 happened? And I was like, whoa, too soon. But I just wonder at what point we're going to start seeing, like, dumb dramatic movies about this sort of thing or or comedies that like kind of make fun of it like hey remember when toilet paper was a commodity but because it was this was filmed like it was contemporary it was like i said a snapshot of the moment rather than like a weird throwback i will say that for work i've already seen a show that has like you know headlines from a new disease in, in China, like you, and I'm going really like, so the, I don't know how this show is going to end. I didn't watch the whole Where thing. Where do you and get I'm, your ideas? It's already yeah. happening. Who knows who will be the first to do it tastefully once it's over. <laughs> and then who knows how many movies of its kind will be made. I don't know. Yeah. And where will it be a joke? Like in, in something like Holy Grail, bring out your dead. And the idea of like sickness and, and devastation being a joke. Or who knows what version of it will get. Will it be like a Chernobyl? Like will will follow mm. scientists? Or will yeah, we yeah. follow Tom Hanks? Or will we follow... <laughs> we'll follow Jack and Rose as they have their socially distanced romance in the, the hospital or something. Oh my god, no, that's terrible. She's a nurse and he comes in and he has COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and she knows where the secret stash of vitamin E is. Or no, vitamin D. Vitamin D is going to save your life. But yeah, the finale, it did... It was just sort of was enough of a nod to the seriousness and the strangeness of this time that it felt like... It wasn't disrespectful to the tragedy that's going on in the same way that, say, you know, and this is not a criticism, but you mentioned Monty Python and the Holy Grail making light of the plague and of all kinds of violence and stuff that took place in the Middle Ages. I kind of feel like there was definitely a point during the pandemic when there was just kind of a collective, like, we're going to do this and we're going to do something this way right now because we can and it's all we have and fuck it, it doesn't matter if nobody ever watches this Zoom version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show ever again. And of course, <laughs> this was better made than the Zoom live events that we had talked about. But yeah, I kind of feel like this is one big you had to be there. And maybe there will be people who are able to enjoy it in the future because the performances are funny and the cameos are very funny. And Lord knows, even before people were Zooming and FaceTiming as often as they are now, you'd always see that in movies. Was there, There'd always be a character coming in over the Zooms or the FaceTime even when that wasn't socially what people immediately thought to do. So maybe in yeah. that respect, it doesn't look too, 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 too much different than some other modern shows. And it was always done badly in those things because the picture was so clear and nobody ever froze. And this was believably, some people had better webcams, so some people were a little bit grainier. And sometimes there was a connection issue and like... 
I don't know, it just, it looked really well, and it, it didn't, like, something about the way that it was edited and the boxes were placed on the screen, it was very dynamic, and it didn't just feel like a continuation of my, my Zoom life, yeah. but on my TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, good job, fellas. You made a good TV show that we liked. Good job, fellas. You made a cute TV show. Don't cut your hair. Yeah, and good job, women. You kept the world turning while your husbands were silly children. Yes. <laughs> Even though Anna probably deserves a night to be a child. Oh my god! (laughs) Oh, wow. I had to! (laughs) You know what? I hope that that someday, to make up for lost time, she becomes a Universal Studios tour guide and gets to live the the path not taken. Yes, I hope the same. All right, so join us next week. We will be discussing the much-requested The Vicar of Diddley, which neither Stephanie or I has ever seen. Never seen so be fun. some Dawn French action up in here. In the meantime, anglophiliapodcast.com is where you can also find other episodes and merch. We've still got some beautiful, beautiful swag um, made by Kaylee's sister, Jema. It is quite good. You can tweet us at anglopodcast. We'd love to hear from you tell us how you spent the pandemic you just heard how we spent the pandemic in our panties yeah oh gosh i don't know how to end the episode (laughs) (laughs) kaylee doesn't know how to end the episode i didn't know how to start the episode we are just doing so so well aren't we what's that isn't there a quote in the show about how like things always like end where they started there's something about like the circular motion of time or story i felt my brain is a fucking sieve, you guys. I'm so sorry, except that I'm not sorry. I'm perfect and I'm not making any apologies for myself. That's right. You know what? Anybody who's judging us right now, fuck you in it. <laughs>